All right, let's talk about the poetry of Gerard Manley Hopkins. Hopkins was not a published poet during his lifetime. He was he converted to Roman Catholicism and became a Jesuit priest in college. And is actually his family was it was Protestant and was not very happy about that. And in, in, indeed, it's uh, at that time it was difficult being uh, uh, certainly a Jesuit in Victorian England. But uh, he had a, a conversion, and at first he believed he was it would be wrong for him to write poetry. He actually burned all of the poetry he wrote as a younger man. But uh, eventually, his uh, his friends in the in, and fellow priests in the church uh, convinced him that he should continue uh, his his poetry for the glory of God, and uh, I think we're all very lucky that he did. But he didn't publish anything while he was uh, living. It wasn't published until actually around 1918. But when it was, it became very influential on modernist poetry. So. Hopkins, in an interesting way, kind of straddles the, the Victorian and the modernist eras. Now, a lot of uh, Hopkins' poetry, and most of the ones that we'll be looking at, are sonnets. Uh, though, as we'll see, he had some metrical variations that he, he did. He didn't, they weren't uh, uh, conventional sonnets. Uh, but they generally, the, the form of them, they're 14-line poems. Uh, they've got an octave and a sestet, so they're the, the, the Petrarchan or Italian-style sonnet. So let's look at the first of these, God's Grandeur. The world is charged with the grandeur of God. It will flame out like shining from shook foil. All right, so the first image is the world is charged. That's a, an electrical charge. Uh, the, the, there's an electrical current of God's grandeur running through the world, and it flames out like shining from shook foil. So, you know, imagine a piece of aluminum foil that the way it shines and uh, when you move it in the light, that shining like shook foil, um, uh, you know, that's that's what he's talking about. Now, those are very interesting. Those are not very conventional images of God or his grandeur or power. Uh, electrical currents, uh, foil, uh, all of those things are, we think, of more modern. But that's, of course, part of the point of this poem is that God is in everything, including our modern world. So, in the next uh, line three continues, it that is God's grandeur gathers to a greatness, like the ooze of oil crushed. So this is a very different image from that first one. The first one is an electrical charge. That's sudden. That's like a spark, something that's sudden. That, as he says, flames out. But this is a, a different. Uh, this takes time. This is slow. It gathers to a greatness, like the ooze of oil crushed. So like, you know, the crushing olives to make oil. And that's a slow process. The pressure of God's glory kind of oozes, uh, you know, forces this and oozes out that oil. Uh, so two radically different images that he's using to talk about the glory of God. Um, two different verbs, charged and gathers. Um, and so he continues, why do men then, not now, wreck his rod? Uh, so that's the fundamental question. Well, look, if God's grandeur is in the world and everywhere, why doesn't everybody acknowledge him? 
And notice, uh, Hopkins is really a, a master of this kind of use of sound in the poetry. Why do men then now not wreck his rod? You have the, the end sounds at the end of men then, and the end continues to now not, and finally the alliteration of wreck his rod. Uh, by the way, the rod, of course, this is a biblical image, you know, kind of the rod of uh, the symbol of God's symbol of God's power, but it also, in this context, is like a lightning rod. I mean, we've had the the image of charged with the uh, grandeur of God. So he answers that question, or he goes on and expounds on it. Generations have trod, have trod, have trod, and all is seared with trade, bleared, smeared with toil, and wears man's smudge and shares man's smell. The soil is bare now, nor can foot feel, being shod. So this is why people don't see the grandeur of God. Um, notice that, that uh, this, this quatrain of the, of the poem, this four lines, uh, begins with images of, of feet or walking. Have trod, have trod, have trod, nor can foot feel being shod. Um, so it, the idea, we're just kind of trotting along kind of mindlessly. And again, look at the verbs that he uses. All is seared with trade. Now we had the charged with the grandeur of God, like shining from shook foil, but now it's it's seared, it's burned. And it's burned with trade, with business, with our you know affairs of of uh, the economy. It says bleared, smeared with toil. So bleared, made bleary, smeary. And so and like everything is there's this dirty coating of soot over everything, which was very appropriate in the in Victorian London certainly. And wears man's smudge, and shares man's smell. So this 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 is the reason that men don't wreck his rod. There's all of this is is like a again a slimy coating on everything. Man's smudge, man's smell, and so the soil is bare now. We don't have the that rich oozing oil. We don't have that exciting you know shining from shook foil, and that last image. Nor can foot feel being shod. We are cut off from the natural world, from the grandeur of God, the same way that you can't feel how, how good the grass is when you're wearing shoes. You have to be barefoot, but we don't anymore. We, we're foot, the foot can't feel being shod. And then we get to the sestet. And for all this, nature is never spent. Now, think about, we. this is, and uh, Hopkins tends to observe the the structure of a Petrarchan sonnet in having an octave that sets a problem and then the sestet responds to it. So, But you would expect that the conjunction there at the beginning of the sestet would be but, and yet it's not. It's and. So this is not a, a change. This is and also, not uh, in response, but and also nature is never spent. So however much, you know, everything is smeared and bleared with man's toil, nature is never spent. Again, a great word. He's talked about everything being seared with trade. And here we have nature is never spent, another economic word. But here it becomes positive. There lives 
the dearest freshness deep down things. So in the and this is uh, uh, one reason that Hopkins can be difficult to read is that he's often very elliptical with his syntax. He drops words uh, to get the kind of a, a rhythm and emotion. So there lives the dearest freshness deep down things, not deep down in things. Uh, he, he kind of skips that, but it gives it a greater uh, power and concentration the way he, he will use, he will cut the words like that. Uh, so there's this freshness that's deep down in the in the uh, essence of things. And though the last lights off the black west went, oh, morning at the brown brink eastward springs. So even though we have, you know, the, the lights have gone out, everything is black, everything is dreary, uh, and yet there's morning comes back, morning springs at, at the brown brink of the eastward. Again, all of the, the, the alliterations, you know, brown brink, uh, the last lights, west went. Uh, and why did that happen? Because the Holy Ghost over the bent world broods with warm breast and with ah, bright wings. So it's the, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost, who broods over the world, like a you know, like you've got a, a, a chicken sitting on its eggs, a bird sitting in its nest. Um, so it's brooding over the bent world. Uh, so the world is bent; it's it's uh, uh, perverted, uh, but it's also being nurtured by the Holy Ghost, and not only a warm breast, but ah, bright wings. Now, why does not just bright wings? It's ah bright wings. That's that moment of discovery. You're like, oh, oh my goodness. He kind of puts that in there. And so they're not just bright wings. They're ah, bright wings. Uh, Hopkins does that a lot. He kind of creates the the psychology uh, or the, the, the inner feeling of an experience in the way he uses his language. And this is uh, a poem that's typical of the, the kind of poetry that uh, Hopkins wrote. He was a fundamentally religious poet. Uh, now notice a lot of what he's doing is similar to the kinds of things that Wordsworth and the other Romantic poets were doing. Um, you know, the the uh, intimations of immortality owed that Wordsworth had. He talked about when you were young, you were in touch with this, you know, the beauty of nature and you got old and kind of lost it, but you can go back and find that. That's a, a theme throughout Wordsworth. And here a similar thing is that there's this, this glory of God, but we've lost it, but we can find it again. But it's in a purely religious context for Hopkins. Uh, it's not the kind of psychologic, purely psychological context that Wordsworth would put it in. All right, let's look at uh, another sonnet. As, kings, as kingfishers catch fire. As kingfishers catch fire, dragonflies draw flame. As tumbled over rim and roundy wells, stones ring, like each tucked string tells each hung bell's bow swung finds tongue to fling out broad its name. All right, again, you often have to kind of parse the, the syntax that he has here. So the first is an image of kingfishers, that's a, a beautifully colored bird, catch fire. Now, th that doesn't mean that they're on fire. That means that they, they catch the um, 
essence of, they look like flame. They look like beautiful red, uh, orange colors. And dragonflies draw flame, those iridescent colors on a dragonfly uh, that, that draw the, uh, the image of a flame. It says, as tumble, all of these are analogies, all these are like something, as tumbled over rim and roundy wells, stones ring. So when you, you know, drop a stone in a well, it makes the, the ringing, echoing sound. Like each tucked string tells, every time you pluck a string on a guitar, it, it, you know, it gives a, a note. Each hung bell's bow swung finds tongue to fling out broad its name. So every time the, the clapper hits the bell, it, it, it proclaims the, the note that that bell has. Um... It says, each mortal thing does one thing and the same, deals out that being indoors, each one dwells, selves, goes itself, myself it speaks and spells, crying, what I do is me, for that I came. So this is the idea that all of these things, the, whether it's the, 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 the beautiful dragonflies, the kingfisher, or the sound of stones, or it's like a, a bell ringing, everything does the same thing. What, what they do is they proclaim themselves. What I do is me, for that I came. So all of these have, and this is what um, uh, Hopkins called inscape. I-N-S-C-A-P-E, Enscape. Uh, it was a, a kind of a, a made-up, uh, a coined word that he had was kind of like landscape. But he said that everything in the world had Enscape. That is, it had a particular uh, essence to it and the, of what it was and the, the pattern of that. And it was something that was dynamic, that would, would change, but would always be expressing what it truly was. That's what he's saying here. Um, he says it deals out that being indoors, each one dwells. So it, see, it deals out the thing that is inside of it, that is in, indoors. And it selves. He's using self as a verb. Uh, we, self is a noun, myself. He says, what, do you, what, do, uh, what does a self do? Well, it selves. It proclaims itself. It's, it's being itself. Um, myself it speaks and spells, crying, what I do is me, for that I came. I say more. So we've had the octave. Now we get the sestet that expands on the idea. I say more. The just man justices. Again, that's like, like selves. If you're a just man, what do you do? Well, you justice. Um, that it's, it's not just, it's the very essence of who you are and it shows in everything that you do, um, keeps grace that keeps all his goings graces acts in God's eye, what in God's eye he is Christ. All right. Several things here. First of all, you'll notice that there are some, uh, accent marks on keep grace and that, um, Hopkins had a, a system of rhythm that was not the usual one. We've seen that uh, the, the system of iambic pentameter, you have alternating stressed and unstressed syllables. Well, what uh, Hopkins did was he had what he called sprung rhythm. That is, there were a set 
number of strong beats in a line, but there weren't a set number of uh, off beats or unstressed syllables. And sometimes when he thought that you weren't going to get the right stress on the syllable, he would add in those little uh, accents. Now, he didn't do it for all of them. He just did it when he thought that the, the reader needed um, uh, help understanding what the, the, uh, where the emphasis should be. Um, keeps grace that. Notice there are three stresses right in a way. Um, keeps all his goings graces. Now, this much kind of looser rhythm allows Hopkins a lot more uh, freedom and rhythmical control. Uh, he can speed up, uh, you know, kind of push the stresses all together or uh, uh, string them out. Uh, it allows him to control the pacing of his poetry. And this is something that would be very influential in the in the free verse of modern uh, uh, poetry. So he keeps... Man, the, the just man justices keeps grace, that keep, that keeps all his goings graces, acts in God's eye, what in God's eye, he is. So here's the man. He also has this inscape, but he is acting before God, what he is. So what he acts and what he is, is are the same thing. And what is he? Christ. For Christ plays in 10,000 places, lovely in limbs and lovely in eyes, not his, to the Father through the features of men's faces. So, what is the, the, the inscape, the essence of, of man? Well, it's Christ. And when he performs that, when you get in touch with your inscape, when you, uh, what you really are, then you are manifesting Christ. And Christ plays uh, for to the Father through the features of men's faces. So through you, God pre uh, Christ presents himself to God. And he says that's the, the same way, that's as natural as a bell ringing the note that it's supposed to ring. Uh, that's what, uh, again, this is a very good... Christian theology. He's talking about the uh, having Christ within you and having that Christ manifest through everything that you do. And really, uh, Hopkins was one of the most significant religious poets in English since the 17th century, since uh, the poets like uh, John Donne and George Herbert, the so-called metaphysical poets. Um, he uh, uh, really kind of stands in that tradition in some ways. All right, let's look at the Windhover. Now, uh, a Windhover is a, a kestrel. It's a small falcon, and it, it's uh, known for being able to hover. It can hover in the air and wait for its prey. And so he begins, as so often with uh, Hopkins, he will begin with observing something very specific in the natural world, and that leads him to a larger spiritual insight. So, the Windhover, to Christ our Lord. I caught this morning, morning's minion, kingdom of daylight's dauphin, dappledondron falcon, in his riding of the rolling level underneath him steady air, and striding high there, how he rung upon the rein of a wimpling wing 
in his ecstasy, then off, off forth on swing, as a skate's heel sweeps smooth on a bow-bend. The hurl and gliding rebuffed the big wind. My heart, in hiding, stirred for a bird, the achieve of, the mastery of the thing. So here, the first, the, the octave here is him marveling at this thing that he's seen. He's seen this wind hover uh, that um, uh, hovers in the air. And again, look at the, um, just the sounds of it. I caught this morning, morning's minion, kingdom of daylight, dauphin, dappled, dawn, drawn, falcon, all those Ds. And notice also that he, this is very uh, uh, innovative, he takes the word kingdom and he splits it at the line break so that the king can ride with the uh, wing and swing and thing. Uh, that's the A rhyme. Uh, but that was something that was, you know, not done. And uh, Hopkins, his poetry is is much more innovative. It's a lot rougher. It doesn't have the kind of the smooth, polished surface that Tennyson would have. Uh, he was deliberately doing something that was more uh, rough-hewn, uh, kind of breaking the rules. And the he also likes these hyphenate, hyphenated phrases, dappled dawn drawn. So that's the idea that all of those things kind of go. What kind of falcon is it? It's a dappled dawn drawn falcon. Um, and all of those, the, it, it's dappled, it's multicolored, it's a dawn he sees it at the dawn. It's it's drawn. Uh, it's moving. All it's a dappled dawn drawn falcon. Uh, and in his riding of the rolling level underneath him, steady air. And again, the the way he kind of twists the syntax, it's hard to follow what he says. But you get the kind of it almost sounds like the image of the the bird in his riding of the rolling level underneath him, steady air. Um, the the bird is just kind of hovering there magically in in midair, um, and then how he rung upon the rein of a wimpling wing in his ecstasy, then off off forth on a swing. So he goes out and just describing it the, the way as a skate's heel sweeps smooth on a bow bend. It's like like a, a pair of skates on ice, right? The hurl and gliding and. His response to this, his heart stirred, the achieve of, the mastery of the thing, uh, again, achieve of, uh, the very innovative way that he's using language here. So then in the sestet, he expands or reflects on this. Brute beauty and valor and act, oh, air, pride, plume, here, buckle. And the fire that breaks from thee, then, a billion times told lovelier, more dangerous, O oh my chevalier. Uh, so here he's talking about the, the, the brute beauty, the valor, act, air, pride, plume. He's described, summing up the, the falcon. Uh, again, it's almost like he, he's trying to get down his thoughts quickly and get all of this. It, it gives a kind of a psychology of his excitement, the way he, he kind of, of feverishly gets all these things down and says, here, buckle. And that's a wonderful verb that he uses here uh, because buckle can mean both join together, 
you you know you buckle your, your the buckle on your belt is to fasten it together and buckle can also mean to collapse if something buckles under the pressure it, it falls apart and so here he says that, that we can see either that the all of this beauty comes together it joins together with something else or it just collapses in the face of something else and what is that something else it's the fire that breaks from thee now who is thee well thee is christ remember this poem is is dedicated to christ our lord uh so the the beauty of the falcon either joins with or is completely overwhelmed by the beauty of the fire that breaks from the the uh, christ our lord which is a billion times told lovelier more dangerous and that's interesting the the windhover is a bird of prey uh, so it's dangerous but christ is a billion times more dangerous no wonder of it he says it's not surprising sheer plod makes plow down cillian shine all right so the image here is when you're plowing a field uh just plodding the sheer plodding of the plow it makes the the plow down cillian that's the 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 ridge of earth between the furrows shine uh, if you've ever seen new plowed earth it is kind of uh, glossy and shiny uh it, it does it doesn't look like dirt it looks uh, it looks shiny and so when you plow through it it exposes that that beautiful shiny surface it says and blue bleak embers oh my dear so think about embers in a in a fireplace right they're blue bleak another one of those uh, hyphenate hyphenated terms blue bleak embers they're kind of dying down they've gone kind of bluish blackish gray oh my dear fall gall themselves and gash gold vermilion and you've probably seen that in a fireplace as it's dying down if you kind of poke it or or if one of the you know the 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 pieces of firewood falls down and it kind of sparks open that's what that's the image here that what this reveals is something uh fresh uh, a spark of life uh the the richness of the soil beneath the the plow one thing that hopkins is simply a master of is the very kind of rich specific imagery that he creates uh those images of of the plow and the 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 blue bleak embers the image of the the windover of this uh, uh this falcon um all of that kind of comes very vividly home to him and for him all of this all of nature is something that you can read the deeper spiritual meaning into and again you see that in almost all of his poems now let's look at uh, pied beauty uh, this is not a sonnet but it's what uh, hopkins referred to as a curtle or a curtailed sonnet it's it's kind of a squashed down sonnet so instead of having an octave it has a, a, a opening section of six lines a sestet and instead of having a sestet it has uh, and this it's actually you know four and a half lines uh of uh but it the, the form is still the same it's just 10 lines or 11 lines long 10 and a half really um but he's still using the kind of the ghost of the sonnet form and he did this occasionally all right 
Well, first of all, you have to know what pied means. Uh, pied is uh, multicolored, variegated, uh, not not a pure color, but multiple colors. Glory be to God for dappled things. So again, things that are pied, things that are dappled, things that are uh, mixed. For skies of couple color as a brinded cow. So the, the sky, the, the color of a brinded cow, that's going to be brownish orange with streaks of gray, just like so both a cow and a sunset a couple colors, again, one of those hyphenated uh, terms he loved, for rose moles all in stripple upon trout that swim. So the the multicolored patterns you see on fish scales, on trout that swim, fresh fire-coal chestnut falls. So the, the chestnuts come and kind of like fire coals kind of uh, fall and break open. The, the finches' wings, uh, again, the, like the, the multiple colors that you see on a bird's wings. Landscape, plotted and pieced, fold, fallow, and plow. So now he's going from, uh, it's, notice he's doing the whole range of things. So sunset, a cow, a uh, trout, a chestnut, a finch wings, and now the landscape itself. You know, you look over on the landscape and see how it's uh, plotted and pierced. Uh, especially in English landscape, you'll often see this. It's kind of a, almost a checkerboard pattern of all these different uh, fields. Uh, it gives it, again, also a, a pied, dappled, multicolored effect. It says, and all trades, their gear and tackle and trim. All things counter original, spare, strange. So now it's becoming metaphorical, not just the physical difference in colors, but all things that are counter, that have, you know, again, not not go all one color, but have counter colors. They're original, spare, that is is, um, rare, unusual, strange. Because that's what he loves. That's what, that's what uh, he's praising God for. Whatever is fickle, freckled, who knows how, with swift slow, sweet sour, a dazzle dim. So now the, these qualities that are mingled, this dappledness, this pied beauty, is qualities, both swift and slow, both sweet and sour, both dazzling and dim. He fathers forth whose beauty is past change. Praise him. So this is a, a kind of as pure an expression as you get in Hopkins of just his his pure delight in the physical world and seeing it as a way to praise God. That seeing all of this multiplicity in God's work makes should make us praise him who made all of this. He's, he's the swift and the slow, the sweet and the sour, the adazzle, the dim, all of that and all the mingling of all of that in all these combinations. And his beauty is past change. So God's is above this all, but he creates and loves all of this pied beauty. And it ends with that, uh, the, uh, you know, the sonnet, or not sonnet, the poem itself is kind of pied or dappled because it ends with a little half line, a two-word half line here at the end, just praise him. And doing that gives it a lot more weight. Uh, I mean, he could have 
invented a line that built up to that. But by just having those two words take up their full line, it gives them the full weight of a conclusion to the poem. Now, the next poem I want to look at is Spring and Fall, uh, Two Seasons, but also... Uh, Usually in Britain, they would say autumn. Fall is a more uh, American word for that season. But he likes that. He's going to use that because of the religious connotations of the the fall of man. And also, they become two seasons and two verbs. Spring, to spring up. Fall, to fall down. They're both seasons and actions. So, to a young child. Margaret, are you grieving over Golden Grove unleaving? Leaves, like the things of man, you with your fresh thoughts care for, can you? So, the first four lines, he's addressing this, this young child, Margaret, and says she's, she's upset. What's she upset about? About the Golden Grove unleaving. This is one thing that one reason why Hopkins has been so influential. He just had such a, an ear, an innovative way of coming up with uh, new words. So, Golden Grove—that just tells you everything—a grove of trees, but it's Golden Grove, and it's unleaving. It's losing its leaves. It's unleaving, um, and leaves like the things of man. Um, you with your fresh thoughts, care for, can you? So you care for leaves as much as you do for the things of man. And his wonder is that, can you? How can you do that? He says, ah, uh, as the heart grows older, it will come to such sights colder by and by, nor spare a sigh the worlds of when would leaf meal lie. And yet you will weep and know why. So here, and this is actually something you might see in, in Wordsworth, the idea that the, the, the child has a more immediate experience of nature that gets lost as you get older. Uh, he says, as you get older, uh, you're not going to be nearly as emotion, emotional about all of this. Uh, you're not going to have a sigh for it, even though there were worlds of when would leaf meal. Again, like Golden Grove on leaving, this wonder, wonderful coined phrases he has. Um, when, that's pale, when wood, you know, pale wood and leaf meal is like piecemeal, uh, just little pieces of, of leaf lying everywhere. And it says, but you will weep, but then you will know why. Says, now, no matter, child, the name, sorrow's springs are the same, nor mouth had no nor mind expressed what heart heard of, ghost guessed. So it's a, you, you may not be able to express why this upsets you now, but it, it's the same things that's going to upset you as, as you grow older, even if you haven't, don't have the, the, the mouth to express it, the mind to understand it. Uh, what the heart heard of, a ghost or your spirit, your spiritual nature, guessed. It is the blight man was born for. It is Margaret you mourn for. 
who he says, what you're crying at is is mortality itself. That you you see the the the, the fall, the autumn leaves falling, and the they're dying away, and that reminds you of your own mortality. Now you're just a little child; you don't really understand that. But as you grow older, you will, and you will grieve for it in a way that is uh, has a greater insight than you do now. And I think you can see how this is both has a continuity with the Romantic poetry. I mean, you could imagine a, a similar idea in, in a poem uh, by Wordsworth, uh, but Hopkins treats that theme very differently. It's in a, a more um, theological context. Again, the idea of the, the fall, um, that it's mortality that you're confronting here, uh, even though you don't quite realize it yet. Now, the next poem I'd like to look at is Carrion Comfort. This is one of a series of what uh, critics have come to call the terrible sonnets. It's not because they're bad. It's because of the uh, the emotional tone of them. These are uh, kind of dark night of the soul sonnets, uh, not the uh, celebration that we've seen in some of the other poems, but kind of grappling with with doubt. So he begins, No, I'll not carry in comfort despair, not feast on thee. Now, even in that first line, that's a hard line at first to parse, to understand the syntax. It's, it, it would be clear if he said, no, I will not feast on thee, carrying comfort, despair. But he puts the carrying comfort and despair in the middle of the sentence, and you have to kind of figure it out. There's a lot of that kind of convoluted syntax in this particular sonnet, and I think it's it's supposed to again, embody the psychology, the kind of frantic mindset that he's in here. So uh, carrion is the, the, it's the dead animal flesh. So I'm not, I'm not going to feast on carrion uh, comfort, on despair. So the, I, the image is like of a, of a vulture eating dead animals. So that's what it would be like if I kind of gave in to my despair. Not I will not untwist, slack they may be, those last strands of man in me, or most weary cry, I can no more. I can. So he's not giving in to despair. Again, those those last strands of man, uh, he's not going to untwist them. Even though they may be slack, they may be coming apart, he's not going to go all the way with that. And he will not cry, I can no more, I can't go on. He says, I can go on. Can something, hope, wish day come, not choose not to be. So this is kind of hitting rock bottom. He, well, I can't, what I can, can I do? Well, I can do something. I, I can hope. I, I can wish that things were better. I, I can not kill myself. That's what he means, not choose not to be. So though though that's about all he can do in this in this despairing state. He says, But ah, but oh, thou terrible, why wouldst thou rude on me, thy ring world right foot rock? Lay a lion limb against me, scan with darksome devouring eyes my bruised bones, 
and fan, oh, in turns of tempest, me heaped there, me frantic to avoid thee and flee. Now he's turning outward and he's thinking about, hey, God, why did you do all these terrible things? God, thou, thou in Hopkins poems is almost always addressing God, thou terrible. He's asking why, why would you do this? Um, and again, the, the the kind of convoluted syntax and the the way he coins words makes it hard to process this until you read it a couple of times. Why wouldst thou rude on me, thy ring world right foot rock? So it's basically, I mean, it's saying that you know why would you you know roughly shake me, be rude to me, and rock me with your uh, uh, your right foot, which could you know, ring the whole world, uh, a lay lion limb against me, um, begins the sestet, uh, why? That my chaff might fly, my grain lie, sheer and clear. Uh, so this is the reply that he gets from God. Why is it? Well, I'm separating the wheat from the chaff. The suffering, the 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 bad things that happen to you, are a necessary thing. I'm I, again. I'm I'm finding out what you're made of. I would also note that and this is very also very common in in Hopkins poetry that there's so much internal rhyme. Why that my chaff might fly, my grain lie, sheer and clear. So you've got all of those rhyming words within the line. Nay, in all that toil, that coil, since, seems, I kissed the rod, hand, rather, my heart low, lapped strength, stole joy, would laugh, cheer. So here is he he coming out of that depression, uh, through all that coil and that toil, once, what was the... What happened? Though notice he puts in the seams there. He seemed to have gotten over it. I kissed the rod, the symbol of God's power, or the hand, the hand that wields it. And then he he lapped up strength. He, he kind of stole joy, and he would laugh and cheer. Cheer whom, though? Who, who was I cheering for? The hero whose heaven-handling flung me, foot-trod me, or me, that fought him. Oh, which one? Is it each one? So he's saying, I'm, I'm, yes, now I'm, I've picked myself up and wait, who am I cheering for? Am I cheering God, the hero, whose heaven handling flung me, foot trod me? And it, again, the, uh, the idea of uh, God stepping on him, foot trod him. Uh, flung him away. What am I praising God for doing that? For putting me here in the first place, or am I praising? Or am I cheerful for myself who stood up to him? You know, which one? Which one is it? Uh, that night, that year of now done darkness, I wretch lay wrestling with my God, my God. So now he's out of the whatever it was that was giving him despair. He's come out of that, but he's come into a new problem because now he's wrestling with himself and wrestling with God about why did this happen to me? Why do bad things happen to good people? This has made me doubt my my faith. Uh, I'm wrestling with my God. Uh, 
my God. Um, so it, 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 this is both overcoming despair and yet in some ways becoming more deeply enmeshed in it. Now that's a very common theme in religious poetry. Uh, most of the poetry that Hopkins wrote and that we've looked at is more of the the celebration, finding the the joy in the joy of nature, the beauty of nature, the the indwelling of God, and expressing that in your life. But he also uh, talked about the the troubles that he had, the doubts that he had, the problems that he went through, and how the difficulties in finding uh, God in the the bad things that had happened to him. So it it really runs the the range. And Hopkins' poetry is both psychologically very interesting. He kind of captures the the feelings and the state of mind as you're experiencing something. It's technically very innovative in the way he uses sprung rhythm uh, and the way he uses the syntax and uh, coins words. Uh, All of that is very interesting and would be very influential in the 20th century. Uh, so well, I hope I've uh, uh, helped you to enjoy Hopkins' poetry a little bit more. For next time, we're going to be talking about Oscar Wilde's play, The Importance of Being Earnest. This is a, uh, a comedy, a very light comedy of manners, and I want you to pay particular attention to the way that Wilde uses language in the play. He is famous. He's one of those guys who has pages and pages in Bartlett's familiar quotations. He just had a way of turning a phrase uh, to make it witty and memorable. And think about how he does that. You know, what uh, what are the phrases that stand out to you? And and how do the but how are they used in the play to express the characters and the themes of the play? And and I think you'll also see in this play some themes that are surprisingly similar with Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. For one thing, notice that the the characters that we meet in the opening scene of the play are both leading uh, double lives. Uh, they have double identities. And think about why that is, how that reflects the, the, the strictures of the Victorian societies they're in, maybe in a way that's similar to Dr. Jekyll. And... Uh, what kind of critique that Oscar Wilde is making of that society, what he thinks about it and how it affects people's lives and their behaviors and their values. Uh, But mostly just enjoy how funny it is because it's a really witty, funny play. And uh, I hope we will enjoy talking about that next time. Uh, Thank you for your attention. We'll talk again soon.